Ah, that's glorious. You know what we were just doing? We were talking smack to death. That's what we were just doing. We were. Uh, there's not much of a place for trash talking in life or sports, but there is a place. The Bible actually gives us examples of smack talking death. Where's your sting? Come on. Come on. It, it, that's what we've been doing. It, it, we, that song is about in the authority of Jesus' resurrection saying, death, you're going down. Uh, it's just a beautiful thing to sing what we've been doing. Um, I remember when I started working in college ministry, I was in my 30s, and I would say to students, hey, tell me about your life. I'd be sitting there with a freshman and say, tell me about your life. And we'd be 15 or 20 minutes in, and they weren't out of high school. They, they didn't get the story out of high school yet. And I'd think, wow, high school is really important to you. And then I'd think, oh, that's all you got to work with. Right. I forgot. You're only 18. The prom was a really big deal. Right? I can't even remember who I went to the prom with. Donna remembers. Yeah, just ask her. She, she could tell you all the dates I went on. I, I don't remember any of them. But she could tell you what I wore to the prom. I'm sure it had a lot of polyester in it. Um, but, but isn't it amazing that the longer we live the more we look back on the events of our lives and recognize the relative weight of these things. There are things we thought were huge deals when we were 16. We don't remember now. You ask somebody about their life. I'm 51. So if you ask me about my life, typically I'll boil it down to five or six big events, right, that were really significant. You need to know if you need to know these things about me. You talk about your, your family and your growing up years, and then you talk about maybe where you went to school or where you moved or a sad thing that happened that really, you know, losing a, a parent or going through a sickness or you'll talk about getting married or having kids or what a job or certain accomplishments, Big pivotal moments that marked you and defined you. And the longer you live, the more you get to see, oh, that felt really weighty then. But I realized in the big picture it wasn't that big of a deal. And you start to realize there are certain events that really mark you. And some of this is really subjective, too. I've talked to people, and the Beatles, the first time they listened to the White Album, was like a conversion experience, Right? Or I had a friend growing up, and you would have thought the Grateful Dead had all the answers to life. So whether you were impacted by the Beatles landing at JFK in, what was it, 64? Uh, or not. See, sometimes things have an impact on us that's more weighty maybe than it should be. Sometimes things happen that are incredibly weighty. Meh. And it doesn't have much of an impact on you. And I've realized a lot of life and wisdom is being affected by the things that should affect me. And not really by the things that shouldn't. Because sometimes we get it all mixed up. There's a radical subjectivity in our culture today that defines everything, reality itself, on what's affecting me emotionally at the moment. And that's a really wrong way to live. That, that's a terrifying way to live. And our lives are aligning our 
experiences, our understanding of things intellectually and emotionally, and the way we live to the weightiest things. The weightiest things need to have the weight. But that's so often not how we live. We, we can become obsessed with trivialities and ignorant of or ignoring of the weightiest things, the most important things, the things that should have a massive impact. And there's a process here, isn't there? Sometimes the weighty things can have an impact, but it wanes. So my prayer for this message this morning is that the most weighty thing that's ever happened in all of human history will have the weight it should in our lives. Even for those of us who've known this weighty thing a really long time for us, that it would have weight like never before. And that most weighty thing is Jesus rising from the dead. It's really unfortunate we so seldom preach on the resurrection apart from Easter. I I just told a friend of mine that uh, it was... I was in Ohio a couple weeks ago, and I said, yeah, I'm going back home, and I'm going to preach on the burial of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And he said, why are you preaching on those things now? It's not Easter. <laughs> that's a good question. I thought, I don't think I ever have actually preached on the resurrection when it wasn't Easter. And that's really unfortunate because we need to emphasize this resurrection, this conquering of death. This defeat of sin that gives us the ability to smack talk death like we have been. And so I, I want and I've been praying for the resurrection to have more weight than it's ever had in all of our lives after we go to the Word this morning. So would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. We get this last sermon in the book of Mark we'll be preaching. And it's a glorious story of Jesus' resurrection. Mark chapter 16. We'll pick it up at verse 1. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for new life. Thank you for being the weightiest thing there is and doing the weightiest things like uh, bringing your son back from the dead. Lord, would you help us to align our thinking, emotions, and living to what really matters? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 16, beginning of verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, so you realize if you were here last week, the Sabbath is really this controlling event in these last events of Jesus' earthly ministry here. They had to get him buried before the Sabbath started because burial's hard work and you can't work on the Sabbath. And now the Sabbath is ended and we have this event. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw 
that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I love how human this story is. And in that, how historical it is. A lot of people think, oh, that Jesus resurrection myth is such a helpful way to think. It, it, but it's not real. It's not historical. It's, not, it's just this nice story that's supposed to give us hope like other fables and myths. No, this, this retelling of the resurrection doesn't have a hint of mythical aspects of it. it it's, it's so human and humble and historical. Again, women, we've talked about how in this context, uh, in, in, the, in the first century Jewish context, women were not your best witnesses. They weren't even admissible evidence in court. So again, you're not engineering a story that's going to be highly persuasive if women, once, once, one after another, keep being your primary witnesses to these key events. And so it's these women, these struggling women, and there is an ignorance in their love, in their affection, in their service. There's an ignorance. They're going, not expecting a resurrection as they were told to expect, but expecting a corpse. And they went and bought spices. They spent their well-hard-earned money to buy these spices so that they could anoint a dead body. And I love how they're on their way and they're discussing among each other, gee, I wonder how we'll move the giant stone that is well beyond our ability to move. And you want to say, probably would have been good to think about that before. Right? Maybe go and list some of Joseph of Arimathea's helpers he had. or you know, Find some guys who need a little extra cash and, and, and help, say, help me. Maybe find some of those cowardly disciples to help you. But they're on their way saying, gee, wonder how that stone's going to get moved. It's the break of dawn. I don't think there will be a lot of people around. And so not real thoughtful, not well planned at all. Uh, and they're discussing this, they're arguing about this, they're not expecting a very, and I love, I think there's humor here. The stone had been rolled away. It was very large, which the women knew. They had been there when it had been moved in front of the tomb. They knew their inability. But here we can see this contrasting picture of human frailty, human ignorance, human limitations contrasted with God's amazing power. 
God's amazing ability to do what needs to be done, even though our fumbling efforts to show our devotion and love are so often misguided. Isn't that so comforting? I find that so comforting. They were going to do something utterly unnecessary. Utterly misguided, really. He told them, I'm going to rise. He promised them that. And, And yet... They, they went anyway to do this, not thinking how they're going to move the stone, not understanding how this was all going to work. Isn't it good to know that God, nevertheless, loves us in our fumbling ignorance? I think Terry's right. I think this is a beautiful gesture of love. I think this is a beautiful gesture of servant-hearted devotion to Christ. But you must realize it's also very misguided. It's doing something that's not necessary. It's not required any longer because he's not a corpse anymore. I'm, I'm leaving early in the morning for a theology conference in Atlanta. And Isaac found this out. My son found this out. And so he was going to make something for me that he went about as if Daddy, you're really going to need this. This is essential for your trip. So he went and worked on it for a while. And this, this is what he has told me I must bring with me for my trip. This is, yeah, I'm not sure exactly. What, no, it, no, I know it's, it's up. Here's the plane. I'm in the plane. I, I'm, I think this is the ocean. It looks like I'm crashing into. But uh, maybe it's Lake Superior because there's no ocean between here and Atlanta. But... Um, but here's the plan, and he said, I love you, Dad. He wrote it with his fledgling English and wrote it, signed it on the back like a good artist would. And, and he gave this to me. He actually didn't give it to me. He put it in my briefcase. Now, friends, I don't need this. <laughs> I really don't. I remember hearing a comedian say one time, here's Walt, Walt's right. I heard a comedian say one time, my, four, my four-year-old always talks to me like everything she says is the most important thing in the world, when actually my four-year-old's never said anything to me. I actually really needed to know. <laughs> Not necessary, but appreciated. See, that's why some of you got mad at me, because you didn't think I appreciated it. Look, this is not necessary. I don't need this for a theology conference in Atlanta. I don't need it to get on the plane. No, but I love it, and I'm taking it with me, and I'll show it to my roommate, Dave Talley, and the Motel 6, and I will show it to other people at the conference, right? I'm on a panel to discuss C.S. Lewis. I may lead off with this, though. Uh, Yes, so, so God loves our misguided efforts. God loves our... Our ignorance, even when it's leading to things he doesn't need, when it's done out of acts of love, I do, I think he loves this. And so we can look at these women and we're just supposed to relate to them. We're not supposed to judge them. And God's so patient with the process, isn't he? He really is. He told them as clearly as he possibly could that this was going to happen. Just turn one page back to chapter 14. Look what he says at the Last Supper. Verse 26 of chapter 14. Mark 14, 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away 
For it is written, see, once again, according to the scriptures, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. The angel says, just as he told you, he is now not here. He's risen. He's on his way to Galilee. Let's actually read through this. I, I don't want to miss anything we need to highlight. that He's fulfilling his promises, and he's told them this is going to happen, but they're taking a long time getting there, aren't they? When the Sabbath is passed, again, the Sabbath is this orienting event around the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him, as well as Mary Magdalene. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, remember that, remember that, it's important. They went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us in the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side. Now, Matthew tells us this is an angelic being. Mark is more understated. And this is astounding to me. And this is an important thing I want you to realize. And it's been true of Mark all along. Mark is the most direct, understated, uh, uh, stripped-down gospel we can find. Mark is making massive points with three words. He has risen. Oh, in a world of CGI, in a world of overstatement constantly, I don't think Donald Trump has ever said one thing that wasn't an overstatement. He doesn't know how to understand, he doesn't know how to say anything without completely overstating it. And that's very American. It's very American to overstate everything and make a big deal out of nothing. And, 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 and Mark just keeps saying massively important things, the weightiest things in the world with phrases like, and they took him down. He has risen. You want to embellish that a little bit? Nope. See, we've got to realize that God has a way of doing things. That is glorious in the norm, in the mundane, in ways that defy especially American-like expectations of glorious things. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. And the American church has forgotten this almost entirely. That it's in humility, it's in weakness, it's out of frailty. And we're obsessed with strengths finders. They can be helpful. But they can also lead us to neglect that God loves to use foolish things from a power perspective. Foolish things to confound the wise. And here we are again, these bumbling efforts, these, these cowardly disciples, the very ones he's going to use to change the world. And so, he is risen. He's not here. See the place where you laid him? So he points to the very shelf the women saw him laid on. Before the stone was rolled away, it really is empty. There's an empty tomb. Now why was the stone rolled back? I don't think it was necessarily so Jesus could get out. It's so they could get in. 
It wasn't so Jesus could rise. It was so they could see he had. It's revelation. The stone being rolled back is for their benefit. It's so they can see the the miracle that's happened. The stone's been rolled away. The messenger dressed in a white robe. Biblically, white clothing is always pointing us to this revelation of God. This miraculous work of God. He's in in his white robe. And they're alarmed. They're astonished. And he says, don't be alarmed. This Jesus of Nazareth. I think specifically calling him Jesus of Nazareth is pointing back to Galilee where he's now gone. And it's also doing the same thing we just mentioned. It's taking this backwater village that nobody respected. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And it's once again highlighting God doing the majestic in the mundane. Do you strive to be impressive from a worldly vantage point? That's not God's way. Jesus of Nazareth, oh, the one who conquered death, he's gone back home to the backwater village with sewers, open sewers running in the the streets. I've been to Nazareth. It's been excavated. It's this podunk little village. And that's where Jesus has gone. Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter, don't forget that, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Just as he told you, he promised this, as Philip said. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Oh, what what an important response. We've touched on this already, but why are they afraid? This, This is a massive theme in Mark. This amazement, this astonishment, this being seized with fear, that's always something right when you see God, mingled with something wrong that you need to get rid of. And then managing fear is really important as a Christian. Because unless you fear God, unless you see God and go, you're not really seeing God. And that's why the Bible both commands fear, fear the Lord, you his saints. And it tells you not to fear because there's, there's a right fear, there's a necessary fear. There's a fear that always needs to be present in us and it's seeing God for who he really is. And I think these women with this angelic revelation, angels have that effect on people in the Bible. You'd never know it from precious moments, angels, but angels strike fear in the hearts of people. The little fairy on your lapel is a bad biblical representation. The chubby babies, bad biblical representation. No, angels have to say over and over again in the Bible, fear not. Don't be afraid. You can get up. You can get up. It's okay. And so this revelation has a fear-inducing effect, and that's right. There's something good about that. Unless you get some (gasps) in your understanding of God, you're not seeing God. We live in such a been there, done that, impress me with something I haven't seen before because I have the internet culture that there's astonishment that we can easily lose and we think to be mature is to not be really surprised by anything. But no, there's an astonishment that should fill us when we see God for who he is. And there's also a fear that will paralyze us we need to get rid of. And knowing the difference is very important. Because, do you know Mark emphasizes wonder, amazement, fear, 
over and over again. Actually, I know a guy, had lunch with him, who wrote a whole book, he did his doctoral dissertation, on the motif of wonder in the Gospel of Mark. Sometimes you read doctoral dissertations and you say, really, did that really need to be done? Did you really need to spend five years on that? This deserved five years of his life because this is a wonderful and massive theme in the Bible, and it's something we need to cultivate in our own lives and hearts. Do you realize how often as we've gone through Mark, fear and amazement and being seized by astonishment has been been a theme? So he calms the storm. Remember, he's asleep in the boat. They're freaking out because of the storm, and they say, don't you care? And he wakes up, and he says to the storm, shut up. And it listens. And what's their response? In Mark 4, they were filled with great fear and said, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? He casts out a demon, this man who lived in the tombs, and it says the people, when they saw this, they were afraid. They were afraid when they saw this. Jesus heals the hemorrhaging woman, and after years of of hemorrhaging, she's healed, and what's her response? She came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. She was afraid. He walks on water, and it says they all saw him and were terrified. The transfiguration, again, this bumbling effort by Peter. Can we just keep this going? How about I build three little tabernacles for you three? And, and what's their response to all of it? They all saw him and were terrified. They, 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 were ter- they were fearful of this. Jesus tells them he's going to die. And they're afraid to ask him what he means by it. And so Jesus induces fear. And there's something good about that. And there's something right about that. But there's something that's often wrong about that we need to weed out. And we'll talk about that in a bit. Jesus basically wants us to know two things in this story. One, he has risen. The fact of the resurrection's really undeniable historically. It's the gospel truth. I love that expression. The Old Testament actually prepares us and prophesies of this. Isaiah 53:10. When his soul, speaking of the Messiah, makes an offering for guilt, and when he dies as a sacrifice, is what that means, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So although he dies as a sacrifice for the sins of his people, he sees the ones who come out of that sacrifice. And he prospers. The Old Testament prepares us for this. Jesus prepares us for it in his teaching, Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The Bible prepares us for this glorious reality. The resurrection is real. It really happened. He tells us it's going to happen. And Jesus wants us to know that his resurrection is real. It's testified by abundant historical evidence. The the resurrection really happened. It's not something that just was fancifully made up. There's, uh, There's no explanation for the empty tomb. No one has ever in any way been able to refute the fact that that tomb was empty and there were eyewitnesses who saw it and that resurrection became the basis for the church. 
There was no other explanation for these cowardly, terrified disciples to come out of hiding and boldly proclaim Christ. The fact that we sit here this morning is a testament to the reality of the resurrection. The church exists because the resurrection couldn't be explained away. This is what Jesus has brought about. And the impact is massive. It means stuff matters. Matter matters. Bodies matter. The heavens and earth matter. He's not just going to scrap it all and start over. No, he makes it all new. And resurrection starts that renewal. So the creation and incarnation and ascension of Jesus, the makings of a new heaven and new earth one day, affirm the importance of things, of creation itself, which should transform the way you think about everything in life. From marriage and sex to human beings in general to a good cup of coffee. It all should be affected by the way the resurrection helps us see the world. It shows us Jesus is Lord. Romans 1.4 Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is Lord because he rose from the dead. And when we sing that, that resurrection hymn, crown him the Lord of life. Why do we do that? Why is he the Lord of life? Because he is the one who triumphed over the grave, who rose victorious to the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. He's Lord and it shows the resurrection does that his cross was sufficient. It was effective. The curse has been reversed. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that by a man came death and by a man came resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ we shall be made alive. Death is defeated. There's no longer fear or dread of death, but hope and peace as we confront it. And knowing we will see our loved ones again who've died in Christ brings great comfort now. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. Jesus' resurrection leads to the reality of res resurrection for those who trust him in faith. And there's also freedom from judgment. Do you know fear is not what we should fear most? Like death is not what we should fear most because death actually isn't the end. The Bible says it's appointed a man once to die and then to face the judgment. Oh, I cringe when I think of the way friends throughout my life have said things like, I don't want to go to heaven because none of my friends are going to be there. I'm going to party in hell. I mean, things like this. Death isn't the end. It's, it's what leads to judgment. And on that judgment day, will you be able to stand? Will you have forgiveness? Will you have justification that you desperately will need and need now? It's only available through Jesus, and it truly is available because he rose from the dead. Listen to Hebrews 9, 27. And just as it is appointed a man to die once, and after that to come the judgment. Acts 17, 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We have assurance in the resurrection by faith that we will be raised and forgiven on that day. But that verse says, you have assurance of your judgment. 
outside of Christ because of the resurrection. We have assurance because of the resurrection, either of forgiveness and eternal life or judgment and eternal death. Forgiveness, though, in Christ is accomplished, and so is justification. Listen to Romans 4. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, righteousness, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He's raised so we could be justified. And this needs to live, this assurance of forgiveness and justification in Christ needs to live to ho- lead to holy living. It needs to live, lead to lives of impact for Christ's sake. That's why in talking about the resurrection, God says in 1 Corinthians 15, wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right. Do not go on sinning. In other words, Jesus rose from the dead, so stop sinning. Couldn't be more practical, the resurrection. Later on in the same chapter, therefore, my beloved brothers, in light of the resurrection, he's saying, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Oh, this is, this is glorious, practical truth. The resurrection couldn't be more practical. It leads to the stoppage of sinning in our lives, to holy living. It leads to abundant, confident, hopeful living and fruitful ministry. And this needs to be seen in light of the second main thing we need to know this morning. It's he is risen, and two, he welcomes you back. He welcomes you back. Do you realize how staggering it is that Jesus tells the angel to tell his disciples this? Verse seven, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Go tell his disciples. And who are they? Where are they? Oh, hiding somewhere. Ignorant and faithless and hopeless and afraid. One took it so far as to blasphemously deny he ever knew him. And that's the one he makes a particular point of pointing out as one to bring the message to. What Jesus is saying here is I love to welcome prodigals home. I love that. I love to see you come back home in repentance. Verse two is so important. When the sun had risen, so often in the Bible, the rising sun is this image of hope. There is indeed weeping in the night, but joy comes when? In the morning. Even an image of the Messiah in Zechariah's prophecy in Luke 1 says, when the rising sun visits us, visits us from on high, from the sunrise he shall visit us from on high because of the mercy of our God. When the sun rises, the darkness is dispelled and hope is restored. Even to the wayward, denying, fearful, cowardly, sinning disciples. When it says Jesus has gone ahead, this verb here has to be linked to what he says in chapter 14. When we read that in chapter 14, I hope you realize that when he says, I'm going to see you in Galilee, 
that that whole image is prefaced by Jesus is the shepherd and his sheep being scattered. He doesn't just tell them he's gone to Galilee so they know geographically where to find him. It's not just a GPS. It's a powerful message of the role he's continuing to play in their lives of a shepherd. The shepherd is leading the way back home to Galilee where it all started in the first place where you saw him for the first time and trusted him for the first time. Remember, that's where you left your nets. And yes, you're fearful. And yes, you're slow to learn. And less, yes, you've fallen into sin over and over again. But Jesus is saying, come on home. Let's go back to Galilee where it all started. Because I love to welcome home prodigals. That's what I love to do because I keep my promises. I told you I'd rise and I told you I'd meet you in Galilee. And you know what else I told you? That the Holy Spirit will come upon you and baptize you for ministry. I, I told you that, that you will preach the gospel one day to all the nations of the earth. And don't forget I told you you'd suffer and you'd be persecuted. But don't forget I told you, I'll always be with you. I'll never forsake you, even to the end of the ages. He's a shepherd. He's gone back to Galilee, not just as a location, but as a role in their lives. Oh, please know that God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises to judge those and pour out his wrath on those who won't repent and won't turn to Jesus. And he promises to love and adopt and declare righteous and forgive those who do come to him through Christ. Please don't leave here without coming to Christ. Please don't leave here mired in sin. Maybe you do know Christ and something from high school still haunts you. As one of those sins that, yeah, God forgives just about all sins, but not that one or those two or Please know how much God loves to forgive and then put into service his people. He tells us, one of his promises is that the gospel we preach to all nations. Friends, if we've seen this picture of Jesus in a deeper way and been changed and transformed and filled with hope because of it, it needs to lead to gospel evangelistic proclamation. We bought hundreds of Gospels of John that are back there that we want you to prayerfully take and give to someone, invite them to our Advent series leading up to Christmas. People all around us need to hear the good news of great joy of Jesus who came and lived and died and was buried and rose again and is coming again. And our Advent series will help us think about Christ. So tell people that you belong to Jesus, that you've trusted him, and you go to a church that preaches that, and you'd love for them to come visit. So give them a gospel of John. Give them an invitation. Give them a testimony. Oh, we need to be emboldened out of our hope and our confidence in Jesus. Let's pray. Help us, Lord. As we go forth this morning, I pray that the weighty, resurrection, the thing that's more weighty than anything, would carry the weight it deserves in our minds and hearts in daily living. Free us, Lord, from the, the bondage so many of us live in day to day because Jesus rose from the dead. Help us to be confident 
that that's true more each day. And for anyone here this morning who's never trusted Jesus, I pray right now, Lord, that they would say, no longer I but Christ. I turn from my sin and my self-effort at righteousness, and I turn to Jesus' sacrifice and righteousness alone. And for those of us, many of us, Lord, who stay mired in, in sin and guilt and shame, free us from that too, Lord, because Jesus is alive, and he loves to welcome us home. And we pray these things in the name of the risen Lord. Amen.